Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief of Modern Retail. And this week we have Jason Bornstein. He is a principal at Forerunner Ventures. He has a really interesting and vast background in commerce and investing and all that jazz. And I just want to pick his brain about what he's thinking about these days. But Jason, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled for the conversation. Same here. Well, first, for those who don't know who you are, well, like, t- tell us about yourself. How did you How did you get to being uh, a VC? Sure. So I actually started my career back in digital advertising when programmatic ad playing was first coming of age, when you could buy, buy display and, and search ads um, using technology. Uh, I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit here. Uh, and this was also at the time when you know people were buying Facebook likes uh, back in the day. Um, I, I then made my <laughs> way to, to the marketing team at Bonobos, uh, in 2012. Um, Bonobos is a pioneering menswear brand, uh, one of the first to raise meaningful venture capital. Uh, so we raised over $100 million from investors like Forerunner, Lightspeed, Excel. Uh, and, and I was there for five years. I oversaw acquisition, demand planning, customer insights, and, and joined at a time where we were just selling pants online. That's what we became known for in the market. And uh, was there for a maturing of the company where we were selling pants and tops and casual and formal and through our stores and through our partnership with Nordstrom. Um, and, I, you know, we, we just announced our 10-year anniversary. It was on Monday of this uh, week at, at Forerunner. And so I've been in the Forerunner family for, for 10 years, if you include my Bonobos experience. But I've been really uh, using this opportunity to step back and reflect. And there's really like two things that characterize my time leading up to Forerunner and my, my time at Bonobos. It was, how do you launch a business online? How do you launch a brand online and build that? Um, the playbook and tech stack that exists today, which which we can go into, like think Stripe, Klaviyo, Postscript, Shopify, that didn't exist at the time at Bonobos. These tools were, if they were you know, around, they were just getting started. Um, the other was coming from the marketing side of things, like how does marketing get a seat at the table? How can we influence decisions instead of being a service function? And a lot of you know retailers that are traditional, marketing is a service function. Merchants and planners hold a lot of the power and influence in the organization. And so most of the work that I did was was really underpinned by how can I get us a seat at the table? There's a lot there. And I feel like, I mean, you pretty much said this, but Bonobos was uh, sort of like one of the first, if not the first example of sort of leading with marketing and being a digital first, you know, brand that, that sold things like consumer facing brand. And so you said that you started as you know, just in pants, and then it went to the full nine yards. I'm sure most of our listeners know Bonobos. I own a lot of Bonobos. So, like, what was like? How did you? How did you go about that evolution specifically from the marketing side? Sure. So, I think you know the th- the thing that's uh, important to note here is that the company was actually started in 2007, and yeah. when I joined, we were uh, we were a team of of 75, and uh, it was you know a low eight figure business. Uh, it just took a while to build this company, and we learned a lot. Um, we did a lot of things on our own and built them ourselves, and we're, we're oscillating back and forth between are we are we a brand, are we a technology company, are we both? Uh, we went through the process also, which I didn't mention, of launching a couple other brands, a women's brand, a golf brand. Uh, we were really, you know, discovering what it meant to build this business and to be backed uh, from a venture perspective. On the on the marketing side of things, you know, there's there's the, the age old tension between performance and brand and creative. And I was on the performance side of things and really trying to put some structure around how we thought about our investments. 
uh, on that side. And then also on the channel side. So when I came in, you know, my, my background, I had spent a lot of time thinking about marketing attribution. How should we be you know, making our dollars work for us better? Uh, and built this whole demand planning function that really helped you know team members be able to share what they thought they could do, the goals that they wanted to hit, have let let that kind of roll into a bigger plan, and then we can track to that. And that sort of mechanism didn't really happen, but it allowed us to make a lot of smart decisions and pulling back spend in certain channels and and uh, and increasing spend in others. The one I like to mention the most here is is there's LL Bean, Land's End, J. Crew, these are catalog businesses. And there was an interest to do a catalog at Bonobos. And I did not want to do that because <laughs> of the other, in addition to the tension of, of, uh, of, uh, of brand and creative versus performance, there's this tension between are you, you know, are you, how much do you want to look like a traditional retailer? And I mentioned, I was there at this time when we were maturing from selling just pants online uh, to, to selling them through our stores and through wholesale, in addition to our site, we started to look a lot more like a traditional retailer. We were hiring people, really experienced people from traditional This is important because it did provide some structure for the business, but you have to balance that out with if you are a digital brand staying true to that. So the catalog felt like, no, 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 we shouldn't do this, right? Uh, but I actually led the effort and I increased the budget from, I think, like 50K to 7 or 8 million in um, wow. a few years because it worked. It turns out that a lot of these channels that seem traditional work still. Uh, the big brands that invest in these are not dummies. They know what they're doing. Um, and, and it worked really well. It was a perfect place for us to get a high quality group of customers, a high quantity group of customers, and to tell the story that we want to tell while also selling, which is really hard to do online in other formats. That's really funny. I feel like that it's the you know that's an age old marketing story that I hear from a lot of brands and how a lot of the old tricks are. I don't know if cyclical is the right way, but sort of you know you say I'm not going to do them, then you're yeah. going to do them. I feel yeah. like catalogs or like mailings is one of them. Opening up a store, like I feel like back in in you know in 2012, no no brand would open a store, and now five years you know five years after that, they're like, of course we are, and it's profitable, and it's it's a great marketing center. Like, yeah. and and I, I mean I would say so. so um, you know, perhaps the thing that Bonobos may be known for most is the guide shop model, which is which is a showroom model where where you don't you you can go and you can have a one on one shopping experience. You're trying on clothes, but you're actually buying online and it's being shipped to you, uh, which really does fundamentally change the economics of a four four wall store. Um, but you know, at Forerunner and, and personally myself, we've always believed that you want to be in these channels. You you probably want to be in wholesale. You may want to have your own stores. You should be selling online. These are ways for you to. Uh, unlock new distribution channels, diversify your business. If you think about all the challenges that brands are facing today on Facebook, right? If you were in wholesale and you had your own stores, that can help to balance that out. That's important, right? We don't think that you should only be selling online. In fact, at the time when I was at Bonobos, there was probably a hundred-ish million dollar ceiling unofficially on what you could sell online. No one had eclipsed that. Today, I mean, it goes up, right? As the years go on and e-commerce penetration uh, increases, you know, today maybe it's three, four, five hundred million. But even if you think about Warby Parker, which is a four or five hundred million dollar business, most of their revenue is coming from stores. Yeah. Well, that's a conversation we have too, just in terms of covering specifically, you know, DTC, which, uh, you know, doesn't mean much anymore, as, as Warby Parker is a perfect example. You know, they have their stores, although they, they're not doing wholesale. But anyway, my point is, is that like, 
what is the revenue wall? Like, I feel like you're exactly right that it used to be, it used to be, you know, 100 million was top, maybe like 40 million was when, like, that was when you were really scaling, but then you would, you'd hit it and you're like, what do I do from now there? COVID, you know, sort of threw things into, you know, a loop in a certain sense, but I still think that exists. And it sounds like you agree. Yeah, I agree. I, it's, it's, we would go back and forth between, you know, where our stores, where the guide shops, were those a point of sale or were those a channel? Was that just the place that people purchased? You could purchase online, you could purchase in the store, you could purchase in Nordstrom. Or was it actually uh, was it actually a, a channel? And I think it was a channel, right? I mean, the, if we talk about the guide shop specifically, this was the highest value cohort. If we could identify that you got a catalog and you went to the guide shop after and bought in person, you were spending four or five X what people were spending online. That's a, that's a valuable insight, right? And really helped us build conviction that we should invest in both of those channels. Absolutely. So what made you take the leap? Well, you know, you jumped from being at Bonobos and then you, you became a, a part or, you know, you became a VC. What, what, what made you decide to do that? Yeah. So I, I mean, this is where it gets a, you know, a little personal. I, I, I graduated in 2009 um, and this is a tough time to graduate. I feel for people that are entering the job market now for the first time. It took me a little while to find my way to get to a place at, B- at Bonobos where I was I was looking forward to what I was doing. And uh, I, I ended up going to business school after, and that's where I made the transition to venture. And business school for me was an opportunity to explore the options that I felt like weren't available to me when I graduated undergrad. Uh, it was just a timing thing. And so I wanted to be able to do that. Um, you know, for me, I didn't go in thinking I want to do venture. A lot of business school students want to explore that. It was one of the things I was thinking about. Um, I wanted to be able to be in a position where I was forward-looking in a role. I was thinking about what was what was to come. Um, and then I was also craving, uh, in terms of where I get energy from, something that's a little less structured. You know, Bonobos and a lot of other retailers, you operate on the retail calendar, right? This is what you. This is how you look at a week. This is how you look at a month. This is how you look at a quarter. This is what you do. There's a lot of structure to that, which uh, I didn't get energy from towards the end of the time. And, and venture is one of those roles where next week, you know, the, the hot deal that we want to do might come across our desk. We might drop everything to do that. Um, but it provides uh, so, so the opportunity to to be learning, to be challenging myself, uh, to be working across different disciplines, um, and and also to have that sense of uh, excitement and energy from the unknown. Mm-hmm. Did you? I mean, like, what what did you think your focus was going to be when you when you made that jump? Did was it did was it always going to be sort of the looking at commerce, taking what you knew from Bonobos and going forward? You mentioned the tech stack earlier, so I imagine you probably were thinking a lot about what you know. We had a pretty rudimentary tech stack. How how is that going to improve in the next few years? Was that what was on your mind? So for me, I saw what the Foreigner team had accomplished. I mean, I knew a Foreigner early on at my time at Bonobos and the reputation and and. Uh, the firm became known in the market for backing that first wave of digital brands like Bonobos, Dollar Shave, Glossier, Away. Uh, what what the team was doing at the time and what we do today is actually much broader than that. You know, our focus in North Star is the consumer, capital C. We're thinking about what's going on with people. Where are their needs and wants being met? Where are they not? Where are their business opportunities? And so... Uh, I saw that, you know, when I joined, it was shortly after Jet sold and Dollar Shave. We were getting a lot of attention in the market. I knew that the team had big ambitions, and I saw how what we had done in 
direct-to-consumer brands could translate, right? Because if the consumer, capital C, is our North Star, we started in one place and with one type of business model innovation and uh, typically with one type of consumer. It was, you know, it was a digital urban millennial that a lot of these brands were going after. But our lens of how we view things applied to so many more consumers. And so that's what, that's what I saw as the opportunity to join when I did, which was a real inflection point in the firm. When I joined, we were a $125 million fund. We're a billion-dollar fund now. That's happened over the last five years. And that's because there's opportunity there. And because we're able to, to capitalize on what we built and, and really to, to leverage that for a broader group of investments. So what do you think is a good example or what's, uh, what's an investment that, that sticks to you that, that caters more towards that broader consumer with a capital C that you mentioned? Ah, yes. I think there's the, the digital health side of things, which is we were early to that too. I think in 2014, we made our first investment in that, that uh, opportunity in Curology, and we've made many since then. Uh, I think the most recent one that, that stands out is Calibrate which is a company that's helping uh, people with weight loss. It's bringing a program to market that you're signing up for. You have a coach, you have access to a community, and you've also got, there's a, there's a medication side of it. And so this is a unique offering that, that part of what they're doing is helping people navigate the healthcare system in order to access this type of medication and care and doing it in a direct way. Uh, but this is, this is different. This is, this is a service you know, in a way, right? They're not, they don't own inventory. They aren't creating a product. So it's, so it's different, right? And so, you know, that, and, and also like, if you think about the difference between Curology and Calibrate, it's this bend towards uh, uh, conditions or, or needs of the consumer that are much more serious and personal. I mean, acne is, is visible, right? It's something that can definitely affect people. On the spectrum of healthcare, it's, it's on the slightly more superficial side for most people, right? Weight and uh, is a whole different set of challenges. And, and so that's a good example of that one. The other part of it is um, thinking about the empowerment economy. You know, for us, there's been a lot of discourse around creator, and we've certainly made investments there. But for us, it's about financial independence, allowing people to work for themselves, if you survey consumers today, especially Gen Z and millennials, they want to work for themselves. And so we're looking at a number of opportunities that let you start your own business. Interesting. So like, can you point to any of that? Like that's, I try to have us cover the creator economy as much as we can. And so what do you like, is, is it more just the monetization aspects that you think are interesting or what, what are you focusing on specifically there? Ah, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty broad for us. Uh, you know, example that comes to mind here is uh, a company called Fora in our portfolio, and this is a this is a reimagining travel agents. It's it's two things, right? This plays on two things. It plays on the consumer need, which is that when people are traveling now, there's actually a desire for more level, a higher level of service, and and so agents are actually coming back in vogue. And a lot of millennials think about it from oh, they're getting married, they're planning their honeymoon. Uh, and, and they're spending a lot of money, they want somebody to help them plan that. So you have, you have a group of consumers looking to these types of people now for support and access to unique, you know, you can get upgraded room, you can get free credits. So you've got that consumer need that's been building. On the other side, uh, actually the population of the agents has been fairly stagnant over the years. Um, and, and 
and you think about it, it's not something that, how many millennials or Gen Zs do you hear saying they want to be a travel agent, right? Um, but actually, uh, it's actually a great profession that provides a lot of flexibility for people, has a lot of upside potential in, in terms of income generation. And for, for people that like to travel, it's fun, right? And so Fora is creating uh, the opportunity for, for people to become agents and to have the back office support and all of the technology that can make them more efficient and to jumpstart their business. So you can become a Fora agent, but it's a digital agency. Cool. I'll have to look into that. That's super, super fascinating. Yeah, for, your, for your next trip. For my next trip. Yes. I need to, I need to plan that one of these days. Um, all of these companies that you mentioned are, they, they sort of span a lot of different areas. We have health, we have travel agencies, we have this. Do you have a sort of like area that you have coalesced on that you would say is your area of expertise or that you're specifically more or less interested in that you're doing a lot of due diligence on and research? Yeah. So, so as a, as a firm where we're, we work collectively together, so none of us specialize in a specific vertical or topic. You'll see people, um, investing across those and, and that allows us to, uh, to make a variety of investments over you know a long period of time, and to you know to a degree follow our some of our own personal interests. In my my style here is I, I'm a research led investor, uh, and I specialize in connecting the dots. So what ha- typically happens for me is I, I see a topic that initially piques my interest. I, I open a mental note. Um, I start building a file over a few months, could be even up to a year, and I'm looking for personal experiences, team experiences, portfolio learnings, market learnings, emerging companies. And then once I get a critical mass of enough dots being connected, I can then visualize a path for a research effort that can potentially shape how foreigners going to think about this. And the, the secret sauce here is around narrative building. And, and how do you stitch this together, this information that's readily available? I mean, if I, if I share a topic with you, I'll, I'll share the couple that I'm spending time on in a moment. Like, we'll probably find the same information, right? But it's what do you do with that information? And how do you capture what's happening in the market um, which is where I, I like to, to spend my time. The areas that I'm spending time in today, one is resale. I think that we're potentially uh, entering a third cycle of resale. The second is B2B e-commerce. Think about the last decade, really pushing forward what it meant to start a business online that is consumer-facing. B2B e-commerce is lagging behind that, but it's actually a much bigger opportunity. And uh, the third is, if I think about my time at Bonobos, it was about starting a business online. I think this next decade, now that the barriers to entries have been lowered, is more about how do you build an enduring business online? How do you build an enduring yeah. brand online? And so that's more of a commerce enablement angle. Interesting. That last one, I imagine, is especially top of mind with, uh, and I'm sure you don't like to hear this word, but a potentially a recession. I feel like, you know, there were companies that were doing really, that were able to raise a lot of money and had a lot of runway and now are thinking just about how do we endure for at least the next couple of years. And so that's specifically interesting to a lot of brand builders, I imagine. Absolutely. And I think that this, it's to be successful as a brand, as a digital brand, you know, one, there's going to be fewer venture dollars going into those businesses. Uh, it's partially because it's no longer sufficient business model innovation to be direct to consumer. That was true 10, 10 years ago, um, maybe seven years ago. It's just not true today. But I don't want to suggest that I believe that that, that, that that means I believe that digital brands are not good businesses. I think that they are, right? They're just not the, the appropriate capital for them is not venture. So part of it is like, how do you how do you get the right source of capital? And then how do you get access to more technologies that have been previously reserved for billion dollar brands? 
So pretty much you would not put your money behind any digital brand right now in terms of from a venture perspective. You think that it's just not it's just a, the, the expectations don't align, which, you know, I've heard for years, but I've not. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you think? Yeah, it's partially, you, you know, the, the answer is we will. It's going to be fewer companies than we've done in the past. What we're really looking for here are, are new business models, innovations on the tech side. So is there technology underpinning the business? And share an example of that in our portfolio is Eclipse, uh, which I'm on the board of. So Eclipse is a plant-based dairy company that's created uh, a plant-based dairy that is indistinguishable from conventional dairy, the milk, the ice cream that you would buy on the shelves at, at the grocery store. And what's underpinning that is like, one, it's a platform. They can use the base to make any dairy product. They started with ice cream. The second is that there's a trade secret around how they do it. They're not just taking, you know, oat or soy or almond or insert the next best ingredient. It's actually, you know, a mixture of ingredients and there's some science behind it that makes this defensible. Other people cannot replicate what Eclipse has created. And so to for us, that that stands out, right? We'll back something like that. That's a big opportunity. 70% of people are are lactose intolerant in the world. But how so do that, you get so, them to how do you get them to actually make the switch to having plant-based dairy is you got to have something that is the same cost and tastes just as good. So th- th- that's really interesting. And that leads and like you're on the board so I can ask you this, but for though I'm fascinated with those types of company because they they're both plant-based and not plant-based and they run into like say a problem that like not problem, but like a scale issue that say a beyond or impossible falls into where it's like they're catering to meat eaters and some meat eaters might, but then also vegetarians might say it tastes too much like meat. So why would I do that? So is this for, for a company like Eclipse, which has the secret sauce that is a trade secret, is that specifically for lactose intolerant people? Is it for vegans as well? Or sort of how do you, what, what is the foreseeable market for something like that? This is a mass market play. This only works if we appeal to the broader consumer. I'm vegan. I like the ice cream. It's not really for me. You know, <laughs> us getting on the shelves at some of the specialty grocery stores that are that carry vegan foods, like that that's great, right? That's a good feather in the cap. This needs to be at the Albertsons, at the Kroger's, at the Safeways of the world. Um and and, and that's how this business is going to be successful. And we believe it's it's about um, so. So I think what's different here, if I if I go to just the nuance of the difference between meat and and dairy, is that because so many people have the dairy lactose intolerance, there is actually this need. People are taking lactate, or they're not eating it as much, or they're just feeling not good about themselves after they eat it. Um, I do think that there that in terms of adoption and consumer interest, there's a there's a clearer path there than there is for the beyond. I, I completely agree with you on the beyond impossible. I mean, I I grew up a vegetarian, and uh, and I, I grew up eating fake meat, and so I've I I just have a personal fascination with the business models of of meat alternatives and, and dairy alternatives. So I could talk endlessly about you, but I want to go to resale because you said that you've been focusing on resale. You said we're in the third wave of resale, and I want to see if I'm probably completely incorrect. So would the first wave be like Goodwill, th- thr- thrifting stores like that? Second, or walk to me. What are the three yeah. waves of yeah. resale? I should have, you know, the operative word that I should have included here is third wave of online resale. Um, oh, online. Yes, so it would have been e- eBay, then would have been the first, I'm yeah, assuming. Exactly. So, okay. so think early internet days, the 2000s, eBay, Craigslist. Really, that was about bringing people online and connecting buyers and sellers for the first time. Then, out of that, you have coming what I see as the second cycle, 
which is a lot of these managed marketplaces. Many of them went public. The Real Real, ThreadUp, Carvana, Vroom, First Dibs, Poshmark. They looked at what happened in the first cycle and said, we need to build more trust online. There's now more people that are willing to buy and sell online, but we need to create trust. So how are we going to do that? We're going to take some control and take that responsibility on. And what that did was it made it for a much better buyer experience. So you've seen the pull in the market from consumers who want this grow. Also, uh, because there was more access on the buyer side, it brought more sellers into the market and you had sellers professionalizing. Some people do this as a business now. It's either a side hustle. When we surveyed people, many people are selling more than once a month. And of those, the vast majority think of it as either a side hustle or a business. And so if you think about empowering people to work for themselves, this is another good example of that. And so now I think about, okay, we have these businesses that have gone public. And if we try to extract away everything that's happening in the markets now because all the tech stocks are down, um, what's, what's really challenging with the, those business models is that they have to generate the supply, they have to generate the demand, and they have operational expenses for authenticating and fulfilling. It's a hard business to make work. And you have some of these businesses that are reaching 400, 500 million of revenue over the next couple of years that are still going to be losing tens of millions of dollars. And so I look at that and I say, okay, consumers want this. There's a whole set of suppliers and, and sell side that want this. What is the what is the right business model look like here? And that's where I think this third cycle comes in, which is actually maybe going back to this idea of P2P in the first cycle. Because consumers are now more digitally fluent. They're comfortable online. There's ways to build trust that you that a company doesn't have to take a product in. Better visuals some digital authentication, reviews. There's way, you know, buyer protection programs, seller protection programs. There's ways to create that trust. And so selling more P2P, I think. The other part of this that I think is important is that a lot of the conversations around apparel, I get it, it's the fastest growing of the categories. It's actually one of the smaller ones though. Cars, home goods, electronics. Um, these are big categories in resale. And so we're thinking mm-hmm. just as much about those too. Well, I've, I've been thinking about, I mean, I agree that apparel's been the one. I'm also fascinated with uh, just the, the the growth of back-end apparel-focused uh, resale. So, you know, I feel like there are a lot of pl- places that are doing inventory management, for, for example, for resale, or you're seeing a lot of sort of white-labeled, white-labeled marketplace services. I'm, I'm still interested to see you know, if they can figure out a model that will ultimately, you know, turn a profit. I don't know. Ah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So is this, are you thinking about companies that are powering resale businesses? Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Listen, I think that that, that I, I should have mentioned that too, because in this second cycle and in the first, brands have been left out of the fold. Yeah. Economically and from a, and from a consumer relation, like customer relationship building perspective. That's a real opportunity. The question is, are they doing it because they feel like they have to do it? because it's a it's making a statement around sustainability that they care, or are they doing it because they think it can fundamentally change their business? And that's the big open question for me there. Uh, and what, what's, what's, I think, compelling potentially about that is if you pull consumers and you ask, you know, what are the places that you buy and sell most online? You, eBay and Craigslist come up, of course. The other three, Amazon, Walmart, Facebook. For those three, it's an add-on business. It's not their core business. They built a big audience doing something else. And then they layered on resale. 
and they've become big businesses because of that. So the question is, can a brand pull that off? Yeah, I don't know. I wanted to get your, because you, you mentioned, you know, how electronics is big, how they're, all these others are big. Uh, the one that that makes sense why it ha- why it's no one has really fully taken it on yet, but I wanted to get your thoughts is furniture, because I feel like Craigslist is the one place where used furniture works. I, you know, I, one could also say, I mean, Facebook, obviously, Instagram has become like a mecca for like high-end antiquing and things like that, which I could talk endlessly about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've New looked York at City. some of those in New York yeah, and, and very yeah, much like, like uh, watching them, but they, <laughs> everything sells so fast there. Yeah, every I, you have to get notifications. I can walk you through how to do it. But anyway, um, I feel like there are companies now that, that have been around for a while but are now beginning their scale play. There's like App Deco, for example, and um, Kayo, I think is how you say it. And they've and they've always been very localized, specifically because it's an expensive piece of furniture. It has to be authenticated, then they have to warehouse it. So do you, do you think that that is one of those where it solely can like for a scale play to be a successful business that is national you have to be p2p especially when you're dealing with something that's so trusting and like like furniture like you, it's a bed you're going to sleep on it's a table you're going to eat on that kind of thing what, do you, what are your thoughts on that kind of product it's, it's it's tricky i think because in this category you you have large items that are heavy right and there's a real barrier to having somebody come pick it up from you and fulfill it so, you know, my understanding is that Kayo actually uh, takes the inventory in. AppDeco's is peer-to-peer, but they're providing the service in between of the delivery. Uh, and so uh, different business model approaches. I think the tricky part with, with AppDeco, I've tried to sell some stuff on there, and immediately you get people messaging you trying to take it off of AppDeco because they take such a high cut, right? So, <laughs> so w- what I think is happening is like, the, you think about P2P, Marketplace, like eBay's take rate is around 10%, something like that, right? I think it varies a little bit by category. All the way up to like the real, real, if you're just getting started, I think it's 55% until you start to sell a certain amount where you can earn back more. These are vastly different cuts, right? And and there's some discovery that's going to happen with like, what is the appropriate amount for a business to take as a take rate? And is that commensurate with the service that they're providing? And there's too many options right now in the market that 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 consumers can go to. Um, this is more of a seller thing. This is going to be more seller driven. I like the idea of home. I think it's compelling. Uh, why I think that apparel gets the most conversation is because people buy and sell stuff all the time. And how often are you buying home stuff? You move, or you you know you're it just doesn't happen as often. Um, so the, the opportunities for a company to have repeat behavior is harder. We've talked a lot and I wanted to get this before we finish our conversation, but I, you know, you mentioned how you're thinking a lot about sort of, you know, business sustainability, sort of what it means to be a long-term business. What I feel like now we're entering a new phase just in terms of funding because we're in a new economic climate. A, what is it that you're thinking about when you're talking to, you know, prospective portfolio, people joining your portfolio? And also, what do you think has changed in terms of what you need to see in a business in order for them to catch your eye? Is it just that they have a long-term, like, sustainability, you know, way, way to be around? Like, what, what are you thinking about that has changed from, say, three, two years ago? Yeah. A lot of the, the venture activity in the market over the past couple of years was driven by inbound interest from investors. And people were raising money opportunistically, raising large rounds. Um, and that's shifting. And now it's getting back to what it used to be, which is almost hard to remember after how accelerated the market has been over the last couple of years, which is that it's inflection points. It's not, oh, I need to raise money 
because I'm running out of money or uh, hopefully you're not in that position uh, or I'm raising money because there's a ton of inbound interest right after I made my announcement of my last round. And, and so I'm going to do a fast follow. It's what have I accomplished? If I have risks of my business, questions that I need to answer about my business, you know, the investors and, and the management team are probably going to come up with similar similar answers to those questions. But, a, but the, the task is how do you sequence those? How do you turn over cards? And how does one card lead to the next card, making it easier to turn over the next card? And so then it's about an inflection point. What are the inflection points in your business that, that make it so that you know how to use the capital that you will raise next in an efficient way? I actually think too, though, that the capital structure is going to look a bit different, especially for digital brands. So I'm also a a board observer on a company called Ampla, and they're providing proper lines of credit for brands. They're focused on brands. There's a lot of competitors in the market that are doing uh, what are called merchant cash advances, which are flat rates, relatively high interest rates. They're, They're the flat dollar amounts, but relatively high interest rates if you convert it. And they're small, discrete amounts, and they're just looking at your digital sales. Ample looks at the entire business, online and offline. So if you're in wholesale, if you're in retail, like we were talking about before, they can give you more money and they're giving you at a proper interest rate. That's much more attractive from a working capital perspective. You can use that to finance your marketing. You can use that to finance your inventory. That's a great use of that capital. And you can access that without raising equity dollars. Mm-hmm. So would that, would you, would something like Ampla, it's, it sounds like, and you mentioned competitors, I assume you think of like ClearCo or those that uh, that are out there. Would this be, would something like Ampla be used in, um, like as a substitute for a, a brand raising debt or would it be used as a substitute for a brand getting a credit line or would it be used as a, a totally new sort of idea in order in order to like because i feel like you know founders think about you know different money in different ways you, yeah. you, you there's yeah, the equity yeah, yeah, yeah. you give out there's the debt you raise it's the credit you have yeah i think i would think about it as as a working capital facility a line of credit there will be other parts of the offering over time you can imagine if you if you're having a full financial platform for brands right and part of that is that they're going to have uh Uh, offerings that are very specific to brands. So I'll share one example, which is if you are selling in wholesale, you're getting all of these POs and receipts and you're often getting chargebacks. The companies, the the, the retailers are saying, you know, this showed up damage, this and that, and and they're dinging you left and right. Ampla can actually look at that for you, ingest it and say, you should go back and and, uh, push back on this and you can get more money. So because they're focused on brands, they can start to do that. But it's really about the line of credit. It's, it's, it's replacing, you know, what you might uh, put on a credit card or have a big credit card line for. It's replacing what you might have gotten venture debt or other forms of debt for. Um, potentially, if you run your business very efficiently, because I think right now, if, if you don't have venture dollars, the guardrails are, are moving in, right? You have to be creative. You have to be self-sufficient. And there's a ton of companies that have done this very successfully on limited dollars. This is so possible. This is why these businesses are good. Because you can do it. Raising a bunch of venture money just creates pressure to move faster, spend a lot on acquisition, and not pay as much attention to the unit economics is the way it's played out, right? That's not necessarily how it should have been, but it's the way it's played out in the market. But if you've got a certain amount of of capital that you have access to that's limited, you're going to think about things a lot differently. Ampla can augment that. So you might still raise a friends and family, but I think you can raise a friends and family round, get your brand going, start selling online, 
and then access something like Ampla, you may not even need to raise, raise equity again. Mm-hmm. Leads into, well, probably my last question because we're running out of time, but I've been, this has been a great conversation. Um, did you give it specifically your background? Your background is from Bonobos, you know, an early DTC player, someone who did paid acquisition, knows a lot about digital marketing. Given the cost of acquisition is so insane now and it's such a different environment than it ever was before, as a brand, is it even possible to scale without focusing on, you know, paid acquisition that now is orders of magnitude more expensive than it was a few mm. years ago? Yeah. So I've written about this. I, I did a piece about a year ago that the, the reception of the market really exceeded my expectations. Uh, the title of it was that your CAC doesn't matter. And this really pulled from my experience at Bonobos and my time at, at Forerunner and, and, and seeing how our portfolio companies are navigating this time. So much of the conversation about growth, if you think about growth, it's actually been synonymous with acquisition over the last decade. People were spending money to acquire customers. There was very little focus on loyalty and on retention. I think we're going to see the next generation of brands be successful by focusing on that. Acquisition is table stakes now. You have to figure out a way to do that. There's always going to be new channels that you can try, um, and you want to be first to those and, and, and try to create an advantage. But that's table stakes. Where you're really going to differentiate yourself is, is focusing on the customers that you have, caring about them as much as you care about the customers that you hope to have and acquire. And that's where you're going to break out. And it changes the economics of the business because if you have more loyal customers that are spending more with you, you can acquire, uh, afford to pay more to acquire them. It's a self-fulfilling thing. And then you can become known as a, not only can you afford to pay more to acquire them, but you become known in the market as a brand that treats customers well. Think about like Nordstrom is a great example of this, where people shop there because they know they're going to be treated well. And so it actually becomes an acquisition hook. Yeah. Everyone talks about loyalty and community and it, you know, fits into, it means so many different things that sometimes I, I fear it's become meaningless, but I think that you're totally right that that is the differentiator. Like that's that's how you acquire and keep customers is by doing something like that. And, and what's changing now in the market is that, you know, there's loyalty programs, which are point-based. Those are those are challenging, right? Points, you're creating a currency that that's difficult to manage. There's a lot of research that suggests that most of those don't work out. Um, but there's there's a lot of things that have been reserved for billion-dollar brands big public companies that support loyalty programs for billion-dollar brands, but nothing that had been built to date that can support emerging brands to allow them to think about this much earlier in the journey. And uh, so we're really keen on that. We're moving a few investments, one in a company called Catch, one in a company called Kale. Uh, we'd like to make more, but these are these are the tools that, that companies and brands are going to be using in this next decade to really build out this loyalty offering. Jason, this has been such a great conversation. We went all over the place through many decades, but thank you for joining me. I really, I really appreciate taking the time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.